stories. We tell all kinds of stories here. Some of our favorite ones are about work because we spend so much time working in America. We're workers. How folks choose jobs, what they do in those jobs, and what they learn along the way. And by the way, when you're not in work or work that meets the bills, boy, that's tough. That's happening a lot in this country, too. I think in, in some parts, it's what the election was about. Today, we're talking to photographer and writer Chris Arnotti, who has spent two years driving some 100,000 miles across the country, spending time with folks that too many have simply forgotten. Chris says, quote, I post people's stories as they tell them to me. I am not a journalist. I don't try to verify. I just listen. And he added, large parts of the U.S. have become completely isolated socially and economically. Kids are growing up in towns where 6 or 7 or 11, they are doomed to be viewed as second class. They feel unvalued. They feel stuck. They are mocked. And there is nothing they feel they can do about it. And Chris, thanks for joining us. Um, thank you for having me. You know, what brought you to do something like this, Chris? Was it a lark? Was it curiosity? Or was it boredom? Um, it was primarily the middle. Um, I, uh, I was, uh, I, I was, uh, um, at the time prior to going across America, driving around, I was, um, focused primarily on just on addiction, on the story of addiction. And, um, in, in, in my case, it was in the, in the South Bronx in Hunts Point. I had spent three years with a community of homeless addicts, uh, documenting them. And I, it, it, was a sense that what I was seeing in the South Bronx, the frustration, the the, the, the people turning to drugs, um, who um, were, 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 were was not just limited to the South Bronx, and so I wanted to see if it was true. Um, what I saw in the South Bronx was true elsewhere, and, and, and so I, I wanted to see in other communities. So I started going to places in the United States um, that you know had had problems with addiction that that were that were were experiencing a, a, a increase in in in, in addiction um, and drugs and um, and that kind of became a more of a project on just poverty and, and and isolation and then that became more of a project on just going into any community that I felt might not be getting the attention um, the medium from the media that I thought it, it deserved. Yeah, and J.D. Vance covers this, I believe, deeply and beautifully in Hillbilly Elegy. It's a terrific book, by the way, if you haven't read it. I think you'll, you'll, you'll understand and empathize with what he grew, grew up in and lived through. And in large measure, he writes quite a bit about those addictions and drugs, too, because in the end, those things tend to happen because of either loneliness, emptiness, or a lack of hope. Uh, it's rarely anything good that happens as a result of that, uh, too. Chris, you've covered so much in your years on the road that we can't possibly get to everything in one interview. Let's tackle one part at a time. You saw a lot of people who have been beaten down for so long that they're barely hanging on. In the midst of that, you say, there are two great and underappreciated institutions. Uh, One of them, you note, is small churches. Talk about what you saw in your travels. 
Right. Um, there's kind of three or four places I go in every town I go to, and, and two of those are um, the McDonald's, um, and, one, and the other is the uh, uh, churches, mostly evangelical churches. Um, there are places that, you know, I, I tend to go to places that, as any, anybody who does who spends a lot of time on the road, I think you go to places that, that are welcoming, welcoming to you. And um, I myself am not particularly religious, um, but... You know, for for the work I do and and focusing on people who 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 have suffered, perhaps um, I found community churches as places that offered a lot of hope to those people, as well as also were welcoming to them. And so I found myself, you know, going going into churches to to both meet to meet these people um, and to get a better sense of what they were going through, but also I found myself drawn to the services. Um, for the community I found in them, um, it wasn't just about the you know it wasn't just about being a reporter looking for sources it was i, I you know the, the community for me um and the strength of the community i found in these churches was uh was was comforting um for, for, for me as well well you you wrote at one point any church that has a sign that says we welcome everybody that's where i go and that's not a bad place to start is it um not in my mind um and that's true i i don't i don't I don't uh, discriminate based on um, denomination or what part of town they're in. What you know, what what the, what the race of the congregation primarily is. I, I find that on a Wednesday night uh, at seven o'clock Bible service, or a <laughs> or a Sunday seven thirty, or a Sunday morning, you know, there's always um, I, I can just kind of walk in and people people will accept me and I'll learn a lot um, and I'll see a lot and uh, I'll see a, a great warmth. Um, but also um, more than that. Um, you know, a place where people can find some sense of, um, you know, I, I think in, in many ways, in my, my, my mind, for many communities and for many people, the only institution that, that hasn't failed them in their mind is the church. It's so true. And I think that if you were to poll Americans uh, on these matters, that the church and the military probably are the are two institutions that still remain fairly high. Um, but particularly those who have families in the military. By the way, how military vets are treated after they get out of the military, my goodness, that we could do we could write a book on that. Um, but while in service, um, still fairly high estimation. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Chris Arnotti. And, and Chris did something unique and exceptional. And he decided to go around the country, started at Hunts Point, by the way, one of the great food markets in the world at Hunts Point. I grew up not far from Hunts Point. Uh, but he was writing about and interested in drug addiction, and he was wondering what that looked like around the country. And the next thing you know, he's just driving around the country, logging some 100,000 miles, taking pictures and posting stories. And this is Our American Stories. We're interested in those kind of stories here. More with Chris after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation 
with Chris Arnotti. And by the way, Chris's Twitter handle is at Chris underscore Arnotti. And that's A-R-N-A-D-E. And reach out to him. We were talking about a couple of the first places that Chris goes to when he enters a new town, a new place. And by the way, Chris, I spent uh, almost two years on the road on blue highways and doing pretty much that. And I didn't take pictures or anything. I just I wanted to meet my, my countrymen. And it was just one of the great joys of my life to be on the road, work a little bit, make some money, and then live for three months off that money and then do it and do it. And I spent almost two years doing that. And I'll, I'll never forget it. And uh, I, wish I, did, I wish I did take more pictures. I didn't. But those churches, let's get back into those churches. Uh, what, what did you see there as it related to, you talked a little about the hope. You said you weren't a religious person. But what did you see there that others might not see? And I think the media certainly doesn't see when they go. I don't even think they see the towns. I don't think they'd walk into the churches, Chris. Um, I saw, I think the thing that, that surprised me the most, um, um, or what, what, what appeals to me the most, is the community. There's a strong sense of community. This is a real, you know, I, I, I think back to a town just recently I was in, um, in Dubuque. Um, I was at a small evangelical church in Dubuque, Iowa, and um, like, every, like every service, there was a, there's a prayer time offered. Um, uh, small, you know, people asked who to pray for. Um, and, and one person asked them to pray, you know, uh, turn into a discussion about which mechanic to use, <laughs> because, you know, they didn't have a lot of money, and they had originally said, you know, I just want to say I'm, I'm happy that my, tr- my, my car got fixed for, you know, X amount, and I can't, I can't spend that much amount. And then it turned into like a three-minute conversation about which mechanic to use and who's the best mechanic, who they can trust. And, you know, it just shows that <laughs> it, it's as much about, coming together and talking about some of the problems of life and talking about how to deal with them and people helping each other. It's about helping each other um, and, you know, and, and providing support beyond just the, the spiritual support, which, which is there, but also the, the, the actual physical support. What can, you know, and I think that, that, that strength of the community and the ability to welcome people into it is, I think, missed a lot in the media. I do. And I think that, you know, as people think about economics and they think about religion and they have all these different categories they write about in silos, Chris, I think people forget about that the church, synagogues, mosques as social capital. I mean, we always talk about capital, capital, money, but social capital may be just as important. In some ways, it might be more important. Uh, talk about that as, as, as you traveled around the churches. Right. I, I think a lot of what I feel is I think we tend to um, I, I put we, we me in, in that category as people what I call on the front row kids people who who have done very well in life and and tend to you know have high high powered educations and tend to view the world through that framework. We tend to think of things. We tend to forget that not everything's just about economics or money there there are other ways people find meaning in other ways people want meaning in other ways people need meaning they need it through things such as faith they need it through um community they need it through um and they want it they they value those things more than they might value their job i mean of course having a good job is important but you know having friends for life being there for your family being there for your congregation being there for your community is is often what people value more than than you know being there for your boss. 
Indeed. And uh, you so churches were one stop. And then McDonald's. My, mine was Walmart. Yours is McDonald's, but I found... Uh, I found the same. The difference being, and, and now that I'm looking at your choice, it's ingenious. You really can't sit anywhere in Walmart and just commiserate um, and talk. Um, but you can at McDonald's. Talk about why you picked McDonald's first. And second, what you learned there sitting in McDonald's for, for, for a while and across the country. Yeah, I didn't expect to, to spend or become such a promoter of McDonald's as valuable. But, you know, when you're on the road and you're talking to people who, who don't have a lot, um, people who don't have a lot, McDonald's welcomes you. It's another place where I say they don't judge you. You can come in, you can, you know, just from the very small logistics, you can come in, use Wi-Fi, plug your phone in, sit there for half an hour, use the bathroom, um, get cheap food, um, and just take a rest from kind of the, the stresses of going on outside. And And you can do it. And people will treat you as an equal in many ways. It's there, you do it, and all of a sudden there's a community there of people doing it, and they're helping each other. And so, I was there because I'm, I was helping. I became close to a lot of people who have very little, and we spent a lot of time in McDonald's just hanging out, talking. And uh, I started noticing that, and especially in the mornings, there are groups of people who get together every morning, morning coffee groups. You know, some of them call themselves things. Uh, they call them the Romeo Club, retired old men eating out. Uh, that's what they call themselves in Nagatus, Louisiana. Um, and that's true of every McDonald's. And I started realizing that's true of every McDonald's I went in. There is a morning group of people who just hang out in the morning, get coffee, um, and, and talk and gossip. And it, it is in many ways a community center now in smaller towns. And by the way, you write, McDonald's is non-judgmental. If you have nowhere to go all day, they'll let you stay, nurse your coffee, read your paper. There's a friendship that develops between the people who work there and the people who go there. And talk about that. Yeah, you know, there's, there's a strong, again, you know, I, I keep going, going back to community. There's a strong community that develops in McDonald's um, between the workers, between the, the regulars, and there are regulars, between each of the regulars. Um, and, you know, it's just, it's, it's, I always say that, it's, you know, everybody says every McDonald's is the same, but if you blindfolded me and put, drop me into a McDonald's and I couldn't look outside, I could tell you what city I am by the people there. They very much reflect the community that they're in. Um, so a McDonald's in Prestonburg, Kentucky is very different than a McDonald's and, you know, in, in Northside uh, 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 Milwaukee. Um, they take on the character of the neighborhood because they take on the char- because they take on the character of the people who are in that neighborhood. Yep. Um, and so, you know, you said Walmart's. So I, I could write the same thing about Walmart's. So I find I spend a lot of time in Walmart plazas. <laughs> um, you know, because I'm 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 driving in a beat up car and I'm I'm living pretty cheaply um, on the road and Walmart plazas. They don't have that meeting place, although sometimes the worker table outside becomes that meeting place uh, or community place. They don't have the, the, as much community there as, they, as the Walmarts, but it's close. Right, it is. And you said back row and front row uh, people, and I thought that was fascinating. Dig, dig uh, down a little bit more on that, Chris, because I think Charles Murray, I don't know, you know look, I think there's, you know, everybody has different political orientations in this great country, but I think you and Charles Murray, you may have different answers, but in his book, Coming Apart, 
I think he was writing about back row and front row people when he was writing about Fishtown, this town with struggling blue-collar workers and sort of the working class and poor working poor, and this upper-class town where everybody got fancy degrees and the economy was doing great for them, but it wasn't doing so great for these other folks. Right. I think the, the big, we, there are many divides in this country. There's a racial divide. There is a... There's economic divide, there, but I think the bigger div- the divide that, that, that is also there is between education, between what I call the front row and the back row. And, I, and I'm a front row kid. I call myself, you know, there are the people, you know, I, I jokingly, you know, the negative, there, there's positives to being a front row kid. Don't get me wrong. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of people who, who, you know, come out of the, these small towns and get an education, go to Harvard, um, get a Ph.D. and, and do wonderful things. But... Uh, there's communities that are defined by that kind of quality. You know, you have you have a large school in your community, and you have a large um, uh, employer who hires a lot of PhDs and a lot of people with um, you know, high degrees. And those places are very different than communities that you know people I call are filled mostly with back row kids, kids who 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 who, who don't if they do have postgraduate education post high school it's it's cobbled together from community colleges and smaller state schools and and you know in these places in these towns people tend to stay there um, they don't leave they they tend to stay for and they value the community they yep. value the family and there's just two very way different ways of looking at at what you value um, primarily, you know, I say front row kids value their career over everything else. They they'll move for their career, um, and they move often for their career, and so that's their community, their their their, their particular job. Yep. Um, and it's just it's different. I I don't favor one. They're just different ways of looking yes. at things, and I think that divide to me is the one that really resonates um, for me as what I see across this country as really kind of determining where you fall on the political spectrum or where you fall in terms of how you see things. Yep, I think that's well put, back row and front row people. Chris Arnotti doing great work. We'd love to have you back and tell some more stories about the people you've met in your 100,000-plus miles around the country, taking pictures and telling stories with folks struggling in this great country. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Thank you. This is Our American Stories, and what we're about to listen to is a piece done by Reason TV entitled Red, White, and Sacre Bleu. It's written and hosted by Ted Bolliker. Sacre Bleu! The story chronicles how the American free market spurned competition in the wine world. America, which was once known for having the type of wine that goes good with a hamburger, ended up to the amazement of the world, and especially the French, surpassing all of their competition. Let's take a listen. France has long ruled the world of wine. Sure, since at least the mid-20th century, the U.S. has tried to match the sophistication of French wines. 
but it's been a tough sell. Say hello to Gallo, hello to Gallo wine. When wine elves failed to convey sophistication, American winemakers turned to classy British actors. I like the unusual flavor of Thunderbird wine. If you don't recognize the Thunderbird label, it's because the bottle is usually covered with a brown paper bag. This champagne doesn't come from France. Even the legendary Orson Welles couldn't close the gap with the French. Take two. Ah, the French. These boozy outtakes confirmed that Yankee wines were good for just one thing. Ah, the French. Getting blitzed. Get ripple. American wines deserve to be paired with food of equal sophistication, says French wine expert Jean-Noël Formeau. Something like the hamburger. Because the hamburger... It's not a sophisticated dish in the sense of cooking. It's greasy, it's messy. Hamburger Nation could never make wine like France, so it must have sounded like a cruel joke when, in 1976, a one-of-its-kind competition was arranged. There was a tasting in Paris that uh, French wines compared to California wines. Mighty France versus lowly California. In a blind taste test, judged entirely by French wine connoisseurs, they would sample some of the best wine from each location and vote for their favorite red and their favorite white. Formos says the French were confident, even arrogant. <laughs> it's going to be so easy. Only it wasn't so easy. The impossible happened. Hamburger Nation won top honors for both red and white. And France took a, a, a slap in the face. I was uh, feeling like I was born again. Mike Gergich made the winning white. It was displayed at the Smithsonian, and his story was told in a popular book. The Paris tasting made him a legend, but back then even Gergich couldn't believe he had won. I said, are you sure it's me? <laughs> How could this American, an immigrant who fled communist Yugoslavia, shock the world? Yes, California's natural gifts and his own talent were essential, but so was something else the freedom to create wine his own way. Different when I came from communism, where it was not freedom. <laughs> I have used American opportunity. Gergic was raised in a small village in Croatia. He developed a taste for wine at a very young age. To be honest, my mama switched me from breast milk at the age of two and a half to wine. And I liked when Gergic arrived in California, he was nearly penniless, but he knew he was in the right place. I already felt that there is a kind of a vibration in the air that people are trying to compete. One of the great things that we do in America, and you hope it doesn't go away, is we have this great sense of adventure. Squire Friedel owns Sonoma County's Glen Lyon Winery. He says California's history of freewheeling winemaking helped revolutionize the craft. We have a great sense of let's try something new, let's try something different. It's different in France, he says, where the government exerts control over many aspects of winemaking. They even have tasters that come out uh, from the government. Formeau was an official taster for the French government. Not a bad gig. I go to different chateaus and I taste, and the wine passes or doesn't pass. He says the rich tradition that has produced such revered wine also has a downside. The beauty of France is we have a lot of traditions. The problem of France, we have so many, we cannot do anything. That's just the you try Thunderbird. It's really delightful. California progressed from Thunderbird to Gergich's award-winning wine in just a couple of decades. The centuries-old chasm between French and American winemakers was closing quickly. The French were interested to understand what was going on in California. Hamburger Nation could teach the French something about wine? How fun for Friedel to ponder. 
given what he used to do for a living. I was the Ronald McDonald, the second one. That was wonderful. The day I signed the contract is the day that we put the house on the market. Acting in commercials gave Friedel the financial security to start his own winery. And he remembers how important the Paris tasting was for the young California industry. And that, of course, put us on the map. Uh, where no one could make fun of us anymore as the younger brother. Uh, but I think it was the 80s where everything started to get ramp up very quickly. We all started to get it. Up to 1980, America has never been the land of uh, great food or great wine. So in 1980, Formo headed west. My job was to uh, come to California for six months. And it's people who say to spy. So what did the wine spy find in California? an atmosphere of innovation. And because of that, America has been able to create many things that have changed, really, the way wine is made today. Innovations like stainless steel tanks or malolactic fermentation, a process Gurgic helped develop, which counteracts tartness in wine. It's extremely difficult in France, compared to here, that you are always tied in some rules that are either government rules or quote-unquote family rules. Not having the rules and regulations that they have in much of Europe, and particularly in France, we're able to experiment. Friedel recalls his first experiments. First wines just sucked. They were not very good at all, but you learn. First he planted Cabernet grapes, but eventually he discovered the climate was a tad too cool for them. He switched to Syrah, and since then his Syrah has been served in some of America's finest restaurants. What if he tried this grape switcheroo in France? You can't do it. You just can't do it. In France, it'd be illegal for Friedel to switch to Syrah, Pinot Noir, or any other unapproved grape. If I want to grow Pinot Noir, I want to be able to grow Pinot Noir. Too bad. The French government decides which grapes may be planted where. The government regulates everything from alcohol content to pruning methods. The result? It's harder for French winemakers to innovate. The French wine industry is uh, floundering. France still exports more wine, but look at how American exports have grown since the 1976 tasting. The U.S. and other New World winemakers are gaining market share and challenging French dominance. I think France has been lost a little bit for a while. Formeau grew weary of French rules and traditions. I don't like that weight of tradition, but on the top of that, they don't like people like me who come with new ideas. It doesn't go with the establishment. What was supposed to be a six-month reconnaissance mission has turned into nearly 30 years in a new land. Formeau quit his job as an official taster for the French government, and as co-founder of Chateau Potel, he's now a celebrated wine entrepreneur in California. Here I felt free and I could be successful, and that's why I've been doing here what I couldn't done in France. But don't forget about France. Formos says global competition has forced French winemakers to step up their game. And that means better wine for all of us. This is Our American Stories, and we thank Reason TV for that piece. Go to Reason.com. And the piece was called Red, White, and Sacre Bleu. And by the way, we love Sacre telling... Sacre Bleu! Sacre Bleu! And we love telling stories about, well, innovation, competition, and free enterprise. And just what freedom does. And the country that produces the great hamburger also does produce great wine. That's right. And that's Jesse. He can't help himself. This is Our American Stories. And listen to all that we do 
by going to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Our Dodd-Frank series, Where Have You Gone, George Bailey, is terrific on this same kind of subject. Also, the work we've done with hair braiding and credentialing, where the government's coming in and micromanaging our lives. Look what it's done to French wines, and look what it's doing for American wines, not having that level of intervention. Again, this is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we love to talk about, well, just about everything here on this show. Art, history, and sports. We've done Pistol Pete Maravich's story, Jim Thorpe's Magic and Larry. Uh, We did Gretzky and Lamont, Lombardi, John Wooden. My favorite, Arnold Palmer, celebrating his life. What a life. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to listen to all that we do. And, well, this one today... Well, this is an athlete from the past you may or may not have heard of. Catherine Hepburn played her in a movie, Babe Diedrichsen Zaharias. And her story is told here by our dear Faith. She wasn't nice to lots of people, and she didn't care. It was her that mattered. She just knew that that was it, to be the best in the world, and she was going to prove it to all of us. That was the Olympic teammate of Babe Dietrichsen Zaharias. Babe is known as the best female athlete of the 20th century. Born on June 26, 1911 in Port Arthur, Texas, Mildred Ella Dietrichsen, or Babe, was the sixth of seven children born to Norwegian immigrants. She hated wearing dresses and found roughing it up with the boys much more fun than playing dolls with the girls. And her name, Babe kind of sounds like Babe Ruth, and you'd be right. She got the nickname while playing baseball with the neighborhood boys because of all the home runs she would hit. Apparently, she was aggressive, overbearing, and a braggart, but she was also the best. People were not used to girls acting with such confidence. It is a fact, however, that competitive athletics tend to destroy all that is natural in women and all that makes them attractive Uh, Yes, she was a woman, and women were supposed to be at home at the time. She was not traditionally feminine, but here she was with all her muscle and ability 
and winning at everything. She excelled at any sport she tried. Her natural athleticism was enviable. At 15, she was the top forward of the girls' basketball team at Beaumont Senior High School. And to no surprise, she attracted the attention of a coach of one of the best girls' basketball teams in the nation, Melvin J. McCombs, the coach of the Golden Cyclones. And in February 1930, she joined the team. She played for the team in the years 1930 through 1932. She was All-American forward for the Women's National Basketball League for all three years. She often scored 30 or more points a game. And while she was on the team, the Golden Cyclones won the national championship three years in a row. But then, of course, she wanted to try something else. So, track and field it was. At the Women's U.S. Athletic Amateurs Union Championship track meet, she won first place in eight events and was second in a ninth. The following year, in 1932, Babe decided to compete as a one-woman team in the U.S. Women's Track and Field Championship. She competed in all 10 events of track and field. Running from one event to the next, even having them wait till she got there, she won five events total, giving her enough points to claim the championship. And get this, she did not win by a small margin. No, in fact, she had 30 points, while the following team, the Illinois Women's Athletic Club, had 22 points with a 22-person team. This was by far the most amazing feat by any athlete, male or female, in track and field history. And I think it goes without saying that she was certainly qualified for the 1932 Olympics in Los Angeles, California. From the kings and queens of athletics, competing in the greatest sports event of all time, Ellen Braumuller of Germany, does 142 feet 8 and 5 eighths inches in the javelin throw. But it's not enough. Babe Didrikson of Dallas, Texas, flings the spear 143 feet 4 inches for a new world record. Babe Didrikson actually qualified for five events in the 1932 Olympics. But because she was a woman, she was restricted to competing in only three of them. Back then, they didn't think it was healthy for a woman to participate in competitive sports didn't think it was good on their reproductive system. Thankfully, times have changed. In those three events, she won gold in the javelin with a 143-foot, 4-inch throw. And gold in the 80-meter hurdles, twice breaking the previous record. I'm awfully glad to have been able to set this new hurdle mark and hope to do some better some other time. She also made a world record high jump but the jump was disallowed because she led with her head rather than her feet, a rule that no longer applies today. And because of that, she was awarded second place. And, you know, with all her spare time amidst this, she tried her hand at golf. The fabulous Babe Dietrichson is the apple of the gallery's eye as she turns in a fine performance over the grueling 72 holes. Here, she makes a smooth approach. Now a 10-footer, and the babe whose putting has been off gives thanks to Allah. An additional $1,000 has been posted for anyone who can score less than 300. Babe misses the putt and just misses the 1,000, scoring 300 on the nose. But she wins the tournament by eight strokes. She would drive as many as 1,000 balls a day. 
faking lessons for five or six hours, and play until her hands were blistered and bleeding. In 1934, at the age of 23, Babe Dietrichson competed in her first golf tournament and won the qualifying round with a score of 77. She defied all gender stereotypes. She was strong, she didn't wear dresses the same way other women did, and she embraced it. Because everything was about her ability to compete and perform. Apparently, she was also an excellent seamstress, tried her hand at vaudeville, could type 86 words a minute, and supposedly, in 1935, in an exhibition game, struck out famed Yankee hitter Joe DiMaggio with three overhand fastball pitches. She apparently also holds the record for longest baseball throw by a woman. (laughs) It's not bad. When asked by a reporter what she didn't play, she answered dryly, Yeah, dolls. In January 1938, Dietrichson met George Zaharias, a 235-pound professional wrestler. And on December 23, 1938, they were married. George supported his wife in all her endeavors. And after going pro, he urged her to apply for reinstatement as an amateur golfer in 1941. She then was successfully reinstated in January 1943. In 1947, Zaharias became the first American woman to win the British Ladies Amateur Championship in Glane, Scotland. Babe Dietrichson Zaharias once won 14 tournaments in a row. In 1950, she founded the LPGA, that is, the Ladies Professional Golf Association, along with 12 other wonderful women. This changed the sport for women entirely. However, in 1952, she grew weak and tired for seemingly no reason, something the strong and athletic babe was not used to. So she went to the doctor, and in 1953, babe Dietrichson Zaharias was diagnosed with colon cancer. Babe had a cancer operation in April 1953, and of course, all thought that she would never play again. But just three and a half months later, she was back in the competition. And in fact, the following year in 1954, she was at the United States Women's Open Tournament. The final round of the Women's National Open at the Salem Country Club near Boston, Betty Hicks in second place. Mary Kay Wright, La Jolla, California, former USGA girls champion, and her playing partner, Mrs. Babe Didrikson Zaharias, who's so far ahead the rest can hardly see her with a telescope. Mrs. Zaharias chipping to the sixth green, continuing her wonderful golf in this championship. Babe drops a six-footer to preserve her par and her big lead. Now the gallery is gathering at the last green to witness the finish of this biggest of all women's golf tournaments. Mrs. Zaharias has the crown wrapped up. Just 18 months ago, she underwent an operation for cancer. Everyone said her career was over, but here she is winning by a mile, a margin of 12 strokes with a score of 291, one of the most inspiring comebacks in all sports history. She seemed unstoppable. But in 1955, she had a second cancer operation. And in 1956, on September 26th, Babe Dietrichson Zaharias, at the age of 45, passed away. Her name has obviously gone down in history 
for all her athletic accomplishments, but also for how she paved the way for all the female athletes to come. On the day of her death, President Eisenhower paid her a special tribute. Ladies and gentlemen, the president said, I should like to take one minute to pay a tribute to Mrs. Zaharias Babe Dietrichson. She was a woman who, in her athletic career, certainly won the admiration of every person in the United States, all sports people all over the world. And in her gallant fight against cancer, she put up the kind of fight and inspired us all. I think that every one of us feels sad that finally she had to lose this last one of all her battles. And great job as always, Faith. The life of Babe Diedrichin Zaharias. Her story, our story, the country's story in a big way. And it reminds me a lot of Arnold Palmer's story, the way he paved the way for golf, for the middle class, for everybody. Babe Diedrichin Zaharias' story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our On Leadership series. And this edition comes to us from our own Alex Cortez, who sat down with Ralph Steyer, the founder of the sausage and bratwurst company we all love, Johnsonville Sausage. And it's the largest sausage company in America. And it all began at his parent sausage shop, with just a few retail locations. Let's take a listen to their conversation. I always ask every guest about their very first job as a kid. Can you tell us what it was, how much you made, if you remember, and the impact it had on your life? I just worked in the sausage kitchen. I, mean, I did. I just working in the plant when I was uh, my summer after I graduated from eighth grade. He was paying me fifty cents an hour, my dad. And the next lowest paid guy was like two and a half, two dollars and five cents an hour. So I was kind of screwing around. You know, messing around. There was a couple other young guys working there, and we were playing jokes, practical jokes, and doing all kinds of things. And my dad was really upset with me. And he pulled me aside and said, "You got to work. You, you can't be doing this. You're, you're telling everybody else they can screw around too." Yeah. And I said, "Well, pay me, and I'll work." <laughs> so, okay, I'll give you two dollars an hour, which is still less than anybody else. <laughs> okay, I'll work. Okay, I'll work, and I worked. And uh, I went from being a goof-off to being the fastest, hardest-working person there. And I'll never forget, I mean, we used to link problems. You had to twist them and make links out of them. And we were having races on the, to see who could do the most, the fastest. <laughs> All of a sudden, I looked up, and there was my dad looking at me, smiling. And uh, that's the only compliment I ever got from my dad. The smile. Never said a word, but he looked at me smiling. And I thought, well, okay, this is pretty good. Then. So you know what that meant? Yeah, he was happy. That I was, he was looking at what I was doing, and he was pleased. Ralph then went on to the dream college of many a Catholic American. The dream college that didn't let me in. So you went to Notre Dame, and you knew going in you wanted to work for your dad? Oh, yeah. In fact, I was offered a fellowship 
My senior year, I took physics as an elective. I like physics. And after the, at the end of the year, I did pretty well. And I actually tutored a bunch of athletes. But the physics professor pulled me aside and said, I've arranged for a fellowship for you at the University of Michigan. And I said, well, I can't do that. I said, well, why not? I said, well, because I'm going to go home and make sausage with my dad. And he said, he just, he was dumbfounded. Did he probably think in his mind, why even go to Notre Dame at that point? Why do you need a degree from Notre Dame to go make sausage with your, with your dad? You know, a lot of people must have been thinking that. I never occurred to me. No, that, that actually never occurred to me. I'm sure the guy looked at me like I had four eyes. <laughs> and after college, Ralph did what he said he was going to do. This college grad was making sausage. After making the sausage all day long, I put it in a station wagon and haul it up there. And we're selling a lot of sausage. Just a normal station wagon, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, was, I, hate to, I shudder to think of how we used to do business. And way back then, it was different, you know? Oh, yeah. And it would all get much, much bigger. At the age of 25, only three years out of college, Ralph launched a wholesale operation for their sausage with his dad's blessing. And it's what we now know and see in our grocery stores as Johnsonville Sausage. And by 1980, their sales were growing 20% per year. All seemed well, more than well, on the outside. But on the inside... Business go boom, 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 it's gone. <laughs> and, and I'm looking at my business, and you can see, we're growing like crazy, and I'm excited, but nobody else is. Nobody in our factory could care less. People are coming and going, you know, I'm hiring people, I'm losing people, I'm hiring people, I'm losing people. uh, And they're careless, they make mistakes, they don't know this. And I'm chasing my tail, I'm running around here, I'm out trying to sell something, and then we got a problem with the ring blowing, I didn't smoke right, I gotta run back, what's wrong with this? I'm I'm everything. (laughs) You know? And I couldn't do it. And I tried all these different kinds of fixes. None of them worked. And I belonged to this, it's called Tech. It's a group of presidents. We have them all over and as you get together, 10 of you and you get a resource and you meet once a month and you discuss problems and issues. The first meeting when I joined, they said, you know, how many people do you have? You know, how many people report to you? One guy says six, uh, get to me. And I listen, you go, listen, how many people do you have working for you? He said, 150. How many report to you? 150. <laughs> what I thought about, yeah, 150. And I realized, and I started realizing it, and I started trying to change it, you know, and this and that. Didn't really know how, and, and all these different things I was trying, and they, they always call it the flavor of the month, you know. And finally, I heard this, because of tech, I heard this guy speak, Lee Thayer, who was a communications professor, but he was really about leadership and all that, and about people. And he was telling all these stories, and he had kind of a strange way about him, you know. And, he, and I listened to him the first time, and I thought, well, that's interesting. I'll try a couple of those things. And I got some really strange results, you know, and kind of dismissed all of it, you know, because just a lot of it because of him. But then, after trying a few things and thinking about everything, God sent him to me again 10 months later, yeah. Through some other way, I hear him again. (laughs) 
<laughs> the guy said, didn't you hear him the first time, Ralph? <laughs> so afterwards, I went up to talk to him, and I said, uh, I'd like to hire you to consult for me. And he says, for what? I said, well, I need to help you help me fix my people. And he said, well, that depends. And I said, well, it depends on what? He said, well, that depends on what part of the problem you're willing to admit that you are. And obviously this guy did not have a lot of clients. <laughs> but he was also independent from you. Unlike your employees, they couldn't speak that honestly to you. Right. Well, I'm just saying, yeah. the guy who was doing a lot of speaking, he didn't have any clients. <laughs> and I said, but... He wasn't looking for a lot of clients. He was only looking for a client that could take that kind of, who could factor that in and say, and say what I said, which it's got to be my fault. <laughs> I think I'd have put all this together. I think I'd have hired all these people. I haven't got to throw them this thing. I'm responsible. It has to be my fault. I have to be the problem. Not sure why, but I have to be. So, yeah, if you can help me, fine. And when we come back, more of this great conversation. Ralph Steyer, founder of Johnsonville Sausage, and our own Alex Cortez. Our American Stories, and we return to Alex's conversation with Ralph Steyer, the founder of Johnsonville Sausage and an author on leadership. And when we last left off, Ralph met a consultant who led him to conclude that it was Ralph himself that was the problem in his business. And then I said, well, okay, help me fix this. And then he says, I can't. I can't help you fix what you've got. Well, then what are we talking about? I can't help you fix this, but I can help you create something else. Ralph, in the best of all worlds, what would you like to have? Let's start there and work our way back. Most powerful question anyone's ever asked me in my life. In the best of all worlds, what would you like to have? I have thought about it for a little bit, huh? Well, I want the best sausage company in the world. You know, and I want a great place for people to work. I want people to want to work here. I want... Oh, before I had seen him this between the first and second time, I said, "Oh, I'll prove, I'll prove that this, you know this is a family-owned company. People got to love it here. I'm going to prove this. I'm going to uh, run a do an employee attitude survey." This is 1980, and the results come back. Exactly on par with General Motors, which right then was when they were having the Lordstown strikes and all the other labor unrest. <laughs> My employees' attitudes were the same as theirs. So that was a real eye opener for me. And then he's talking. And so that's when I started understanding that it was all about me. Up until that point, it was all about I want to get rich. I want to have this. I want to have this. I want to have this. You guys should all help me. You know, there's a great story about that. There's a fella who was a business in, in a big city, and there's this hill next to the city up high, and he takes his number right-handed person up on top of this hill, and he says to her, 
You see, you see that, that right down here below the summit, you see that plateau there? He says, yep. Can you imagine a house on that plateau? Down looking over the city, all the lights. You've got the sun coming in the afternoon. On the left, on the right side, sheltered from the wind, you'd have the tennis court. On the left side, where you get the sun all day, and I know you'd have the swimming pool. You have all this down there, and there'd be a huge house, gorgeous house. And she says, yes, I can see it, I can see it. So I'll tell you what, you work your butt off, and someday that'll all be mine. <laughs> and that was you. Yeah. And that was me. So that's what I had. Yeah. I mean, everybody stood around waiting for me to make a decision. Well, you start off when you have seven people. You don't need a lot of supervisors and stuff like that, do you? Mm -hmm. you can, someone has to just, so I'm the guy, I'm the I'm the smartest guy in the room. I'm the only educated guy in the room, you know? And so I'm doing this, and I am. God gave me some gifts. I'm, I, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm smart. So I'm figuring this out, figuring this out, figuring this out, doing this, this. And you, you just start doing that. You start doing that. You start doing that. You start doing that. It's bigger, bigger, bigger. You keep doing it. Because that's how you got here. And then you have to unlearn all that. And... But even if you try to pass it on, why would anybody take it? Yeah, talk about that. You had a line in your book that you went from authoritarian control to authoritarian abdication. And how it didn't work. Yeah, well, Tom Pierce always used to say that. Just get out of the way. Well, I got out of the way and watched him stand right there. <laughs> you know? It doesn't work when you've been doing it one way. If you're the leader, people are looking at you for signs of what does it take to succeed? Everybody wants to, almost everyone wants to succeed, okay? Mm -hmm. Not a lot of people getting up in the morning thinking, gosh, I can't wait to screw up today. You know? Not a lot of that going on in the world. There may be a few, but those are strange people. So, they'll look to the leader for what does it take to make this guy happy? Or this lady happy or whatever, you know? What does it take to make this person happy? This please this person, what are, they, what are they looking for? And they're not listening to the words, they're looking at what this person does. So I had to absolutely look at my own behavior and start changing my behavior. It wasn't about them. It's never about them. And if you, were, if you say it's their problem, well, you have no control. You lose all power when it's about them and not about you. The only control you have is what you do, don't do. So I had to ask questions rather than give answers. When people would come to me, they'd start asking me, you know, what should I do? I don't know, what do you think you should do? Well, I was wondering, you probably know better than I do what to do. And I said, no, I'm interested, I'm interested in what you know. I already know what I know. I want to know what you know. What do you think? And, uh, well, when you, when you have an idea of what you want to do, come back and talk to me. Tell me what it is. You had a sign on your desk that said... The question is the answer. And that took, boy, they'd come back in two or three times trying to figure out what I do. You know, well, they all knew that what I really wanted, and when I first started out, they all knew what I really wanted to do was know what I wanted to do. They should know that. Ralph expanded upon this in his book, writing, At first, I didn't really want them to make independent decisions. I wanted them to make the decisions I would have made. Deep down... I was still in love with my own control. I was just making people guess what I wanted instead of telling them. Back to Ralph. It took a while for me to realize also that 
they had good stuff, you know. And but we got there, but it took a long it took a long time. And, you, and, I, you, and I had to stay with it. How do you get people to go from though being disinterested in owning it to actually wanting the control? I mean, that's a tough transition to make. You know, unless you bring in a whole new group of employees. Almost all of them made it. A couple didn't. But the thing is, and those couple probably shouldn't have been there in the first place. I was carrying them. I think they always had ideas about what should be done. But I wasn't listening, interested in hearing them. So when I really started asking and asking and asking, they disinterested. It looks like that, but it wasn't because they just knew that I wasn't interested in their opinions. I wasn't asking, I was telling. And so they've been trained very well not to even volunteer it. Ralph eventually realized that his mere presence deterred them from freely volunteering it, writing, I discovered that in meetings people waited to hear my opinion before offering their own. In the beginning I insisted that they say what they thought, unaware that I showed my own preferences in subtle ways, my tone of voice, the questions I asked, which nevertheless anyone could read and interpret expertly. When I realized what was happening, I began to stay silent to avoid giving any clue where I stood. The result was that people flatly refused to commit themselves to any decision at all. Some of the meetings would have gone on for days if I hadn't forced people to speak out. In the end, I began scheduling myself out of many meetings, forcing others to make their decisions without me. So when we started really talking about what great looked like, all I ask my people to do, on the line, anywhere else, ask yourself, well, no matter what's coming up, is what I'm about to do going to help make us the best sausage company in the world? If you see product coming through that is not going to help us, shut the line down. I don't care what the efficiencies are. Shut the line down. I want only great product coming through here. Or you're dead. Or we're dead. Ralph and his senior management team used to evaluate their products several times a week checking it for taste, flavor, color, and texture. He wrote in his book, One day it struck me that by checking the product, management had assumed responsibility for its quality. We were not encouraging people to be responsible for their own performance. This line of reasoning led me to another insight. The first strategic decision I needed to make was who should make the decisions. On the theory that those who implement a decision and live with its consequences are the best people to make it, we changed our quality control system. Management stopped tasting sausage, and the people who made the sausage started. And it surprised me how readily people accepted this ownership. They formed teams of workers to resolve quality problems, and the results were amazing. Rejects fell from 5% to less than 0.5%. Then people came and went, well, if you want to be the greatest sausage company in the world, you've got to fix those vending machines. That's, that crap in there is terrible. I said, I don't even eat on the vending machines. Uh, you guys should fix them. Well, how would we do? We don't know how to do that. I said, well, I'll send in the vending companies and you talk to them about what you want. You pick the one you want. Why should I be? You should be doing that. You know, vacations, like, we get over there. But you know we got to make the sausage, okay? You guys organize how you ever, however you want to do it. It's not going to be seniority, no seniority. You guys figure it out. There are all these different things. 
all these issues that they dealt with. But sit down, what would you like to do? What would, what would it take to make this the best place to work? Ralph Steyer, founder of Johnsonville Sausage, on leadership with Alex Cortez. After we continue, this is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with Alex's conversation with Ralph Steyer, the founder of Johnsonville Sausage. And boy, Ralph's got to be grateful he bumped into this consultant, because this consultant changed his life. And by the way, so many consultants, boy, stay away from them, because they're not going to tell you the truth. They're going to lie to you and collect a retainer. But this one told Ralph the truth. You're the problem. Let's pick up where Alex left off. And in the meantime, I started paying them a percentage of the profit as bonuses. So they're all, everyone's on the profit wagon, you know? Everyone now had the same incentive for greatness. But all these different things, if you understand, this has to happen, right? Because if we, this doesn't happen, none of, there won't be anything for anybody. Yeah, we get that. Okay. Well, understanding the constraints, how do you want to do it? I don't care. What's good for you guys? I'm the boss and I don't care. <laughs> I just want you guys to be happy. Understanding that it is work, you gotta work. So understanding that, what how do you wanna organize whatever all I, all I want is it to be the best for you guys. So how do you wanna do it? And you guys did it in such a radical way. I couldn't believe Ralph when I was reading the book, giving them control of hiring, firing, oh, I mean, you God. mentioned bonuses, like them set up the structure. Yeah. I mean, talk about some of these things. I mean, it's, it's crazy. I mean, is there any other company giving employees that much control? Well. At, at that size, too. No, I don't think so. But, you know, there's always constraints. I mean, this is what it is. I didn't. Like the bonus program. It's just this percentage of the profit. And you've got to do it based on performance. We're not going to splice it evenly. You've got to reward people for doing, for making contributions. So within that framework, how should we do it? Let's work on this together. And I, we was, I was involved to ask questions and all this. And we came, but I did not design it. We all did it together. In his book, Ralph shared the profit-sharing structure their team collectively devised, writing, Every six months, we evaluate the performance of everyone at Johnsonville to help us compute shares in our profit-sharing program. Except we is really the wrong word. In practice, performance evaluations are done by the employees themselves. For example, 300 wage earners, salaried employees, Fill out forms in which they rate themselves on a scale of 1 to 9 in 17 specific areas that are grouped in three categories, performance, teamwork, and personal development. These guys are thorough. Scores of 3, 4, and 5, the average range, are simply entered on the proper line. Low scores of 1 and 2 and high scores of 6 to 9 require a sentence or two of explanation. Makes sense. Each member's coach fills out an identical form and later... Both people sit down together to discuss all 17 areas. In cases of disagreement, the rule is only that their overall points total must agree within nine points. 
whereupon the two totals are averaged to reach a final score. If they cannot narrow the gap to nine points, an arbitration group is ready to step in and help, but so far, it's never been needed. All final scores, names deleted, are then passed on to a profit-sharing team that cars out the five categories of performance and bonuses. A small group of superior performers, about 5% of the total, a larger group of better-than-average performers, roughly 20%, an average group amounting to about 50% of the workforce, a below-average group of 20%, and a small group of poor performers who are often in danger of losing their jobs. Yes, people do complain from time to time, especially if they think they've missed a higher share by only a point or two. And the usual way of dealing with such situations is to help the individual improve his or her performance in enough areas to ensure a higher score the next time. But overall satisfaction with the system is very high, partly because fellow workers invented it, administer it, and constantly revise it in an effort to make it more equitable. And the person currently in charge of Johnsonville's profit-sharing system is an hourly worker from the shipping department. Back to Ralph. I know the easiest thing is just give everybody the same, then you don't have to worry about any conflict. Or, but it's not fair. Yeah. It's not right, and it's not going to help us. employees know that. Yeah. It's, that degrades well, your culture. Well, tell them that. Yeah. But it's not going to help us become the best sausage company in the world because we have to acknowledge the people and we have to encourage other people to raise their, raise their sights. What makes the best sausage company in the world? Having the best sausage people. Having the best people. You guys are making the sausage. You guys are doing this. The best company in the world has the best people. Just, that's all it is. So how do we do that? Well, when you start having that dialogue with people, it lifts them up. Yeah. So it started as Bill making the business better, but it also started with the Bible, with all the stories about Christ, with the story about the talents and the mm-hmm. stewards, and understanding that this is what God wants. People want, he wants God to use our talents. He wants them to develop their talents and, and not to waste them. And I realized, and that's why I wrote, we have a moral responsibility to be the best song, to, to develop our talents and be the best for all the people and all that. It's a moral responsibility to develop your talents. It's immoral, warehousing people, condemning them to a second-rate life, enabling them to be, to not utilize their talents to help others. And it's, and it's a bad life for these people because God made us all. God made every one of us to use our talents to support our families, to, to serve God, to help others, to contribute. And he gave us all talent. It's all different, but he gave us all talent. And that's in the Bible. That's St. Paul says that. You know, he gave everybody different talents, but so... And you used to not really recognize your employees' talents in that moral way. And you eventually concluded, you wrote in the book, that you want to help develop the employee's talent and help them use the company. I found it was interesting that you used the word use. Like, let have your employees use Johnsonville to get where they wanted. It also had to get the company where they want, where the company wanted to go. But you were really trying to develop that person's talent much further than the idea of Johnsonville. Oh, yeah, and if they go somewhere else, God bless them. We just had a couple people leave, and we got a whole pray for them because they got big jobs elsewhere, and they weren't going to get them. 
in the same time frame at Johnsonville. I just had a couple of very talented, and some people were upset about it. Isn't it wonderful the amount of talent we have that these big companies will hire our people and give them these big jobs? Think about that. <laughs> That's rather big of you to think that way. Well, think about that, though, guys. Let's keep it up. Let's make sure we have more of those people in the thing. Let's, some people are going to stay, some are going to go, but gosh, but senior vice president of, uh, for Dyson, for Dyson, you know, our, lady, our girl down who is not even near that level at, 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 in our yeah. innovation office in Chicago is now the senior vice president at the marketing whatever for Dyson. You'd rather have that problem than the reverse. Yeah. <laughs> I had that. My mom said, true in all this training and development, people, what if they leave? And I said, Bob, what if they don't? What if I don't train them and they don't leave? <laughs> and I'm stuck with all these people that don't know anything. Yeah. Speaking of training, I briefly mentioned earlier how Ralph empowered his team to hire and fire their colleagues. So, for example, the line workers making the sausage decided who they were working with. They were the ones living with the consequences, so it should be their decision. Well, when they made this change, that traditional personnel department was no longer needed. So Johnsonville replaced it with a learning and personal development team to help individual employees develop their own starting points and destinations and how the company could help them get there. Ralph wrote, We set up an educational allowance for each person to be used however they saw fit. In the beginning, some took cooking or sewing classes. A few took flying lessons. Over time, however, more and more of the employees focused on job-related learning. Today... More than 65% of all the people at Johnsonville are involved in some type of formal education. And what a delight. And by the way, the book, the book is How I Learned to Let My Workers Lead. The author, Ralph Steyer, on leadership here on Our American Stories. Ralph's story, the final segment, when we come back. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with the final portion of our latest on-leadership feature, Alex's conversation with Johnsonville Sausage founder, Ralph Steyer. You've heard Ralph mention his Christian faith throughout our interview and how it shaped his life and the life of Johnsonville. But now, he really dives in. Catholic, I'm Catholic. So I'm sitting in church one day listening to just one more sermon about how the rich are going to hell and the poor are so blessed and God loves them so much. And I said, if they loved them that much, they wouldn't be poor. <laughs> you know, that's crap. And afterwards, I went up to the priest and I said to him, he was standing outside. And I went, just once, just once, I would love to hear a priest give a sermon. Just like St. Paul says in Thessalonians, isn't it wonderful that God gives people different talents? And he gives some people the talent to put together capital and to create products and to create a business and hire people and, so that, and pay them good wages so that these people can work 
And these people can support their families. And these people can be part of the community and support the community and, and support the church and pay your salary, Father. Because he doesn't give those talents to just everybody. I never thought of it like that. I said, well, don't you think you should? Really? That's the last time he ever gave that stupid sermon. No. A lot of people don't have courage enough, though, to have that conversation with their priest. I've had it. <laughs> but if I'm doing it just for the money, then yeah, okay. And, I, and I'm grabbing money, grabbing money, grabbing money. Okay. I get it. And it's all money, 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 money. People, nothing else counts. Then shame on me, and yeah, then I'm exactly what he said I am. But if I'm not doing that, if I'm building people, creating jobs, doing all this other stuff, oh, and I am enjoying the fruits of my labor. Don't get me wrong, I, I don't mind the cash. Yeah. So, two more stories along that line. But I always worried about it. I always, growing up Catholic, I always felt the guilt. I always worried about it. Always about your success. Yeah. And I prayed and prayed and prayed to God. And I prayed to God, and I don't know, 10, 12 years ago, you know, what do you want me to do? Should I sell everything and go to Africa? You know, be a missionary? And, because, you know, these people are going to Africa and they're going yeah. to Canada. All the people doing all this other stuff. And, like this chump who's golfing. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> and one day I'm reading the Link Letter, which is our company's publication. And on the front page is a story about this fellow who he and his wife had just come back from Hong Kong. He was a maintenance person, mechanic, in our company. And his wife had gone to Hong Kong to adopt a special needs child, and they had just returned. Wow. And the Holy Spirit came over me in a wave. It just washed over me in this profound feeling that I can't describe. It's so powerful. And he said, Ralph, you're doing exactly what I want you to do. Without you, he couldn't do that. You're providing all of us. Keep doing, but give me some credit. <laughs> so, um, that was a Friday. Monday morning, we have, it just so happens, you think God doesn't have a plan, that's all. That's, every other week, we have a, a strategy team meeting. Well, it's fresh on my mind because Monday morning, with, this is Friday, Monday morning, with a strategy team meeting, first thing in the morning. 14 other people that were besides me, and I tell them this story about how I know I struggled with it, what happened, and, and, what, the same, and what he said, you know, what the Lord said about giving him some more credit. Because I always kind of kept the God thing out of business, you know, that doesn't belong to business. Yeah. And I mean, you're, a, you're a big company that's in grocery stores. I mean, there's got to be a fear inside of you. If I politicize this too much, if I religionize this too much, some customers well, just, might leave us. Or, or whatever, or people, or whatever, yeah. offend people, or whatever. You know? And I, and I, so I said, I always worry about whether I'm serving God or work. That don't it? You worry about that? 14 hands went up. Oh. All 14 hands. And I said, well, it's pretty clear that we got to start talking about serving God at work. We have to become a company that actually does that. We have to acknowledge it. We have to acknowledge God and all the things we do and why we're here. 
what our purpose is, why we have a moral responsibility. It's because that's God. That's how God made us. Yeah. God made us this way, and if we're not doing that, we're going against God. We're not going to have happy lives. We just have to acknowledge that and operate that way. And so, so we changed a few things, and then we had this tree with values. It's got seven values on it, and the roots on the roots I put down: love thy neighbor, just like Christ said, above all things. Yeah. Everything we do is out of love for our neighbor, yeah. whether we're working or everybody else in the marketplace, our customers. Love. It's all about love, your neighbor. So we've done that. We've done a whole bunch of things. So that was the first one. The second one was this Holy Spirit thing. And then, oh, so to where I've gotten to a couple of years ago, two and a half years ago, this. President Oscar Meyer came to see us, and uh, and we told him, if you want to talk about Brian Johnson, don't forget it. Don't even bother coming; it's not for sale. And I said to, him, and so he comes, and oh, hi, Sam, how are you doing? Blah blah blah. blah. Good to see you. Blah blah blah. And I said, well, good to see you. Why don't you want to come see us? He says, well, you know, I just want to get to know the I'm new in the industry. I just want to get to know all the people better. You know, it's amazing. There's so many family-owned companies in this industry. He's treading on it because he knows he was told, if you start talking about that, the meal will be over, you'll be thrown out. And, which I'd done to somebody else, so the word was out. <laughs> so he says, but you know, eventually family companies, like, you know, they're looking for a way to get out or whatever. We just want to know people, and whenever that happens, we just want to create relationships. You know, Oscar Mayer never bought any businesses, but now we're in a position where we're going to, and so we, and I just wanted the whole company, everyone to know that Oscar Mayer is looking for a different opportunity. I thought, oh, okay. Well, let me explain something to you, Sam. <laughs> the concept of selling this business for me is not a financial decision. It's really a decision of whether or not I go to heaven or I go to hell. Because God gave me this business. God put me here. God built this business using me for his purposes. And if I sell this business, that's all going to be gone the day I sell it. Yeah. And, and I'll have done it all. I'll have used God for my own purposes just for the money. And that for sure will send me to hell. But if I keep it and keep doing it, I don't know where it was, I'll go to heaven. So what do you think the odds are this is going to get sold in my lifetime? And he said, well, let's talk about something else. <laughs> let's talk about what else we can do together then. And I had never thought about that. Yeah. The Holy Spirit put those words right in my mouth. Right then and there, the Holy Spirit told me. And he sent that guy to see me because those are always back there in your mind. What if it doesn't work this way or that? What would I do? And the Holy Spirit sent that guy to me so that I could say those words so I would understand exactly what was at stake. The Lord's always working in my life and yours and everybody else's. You just have to be smart enough to realize it. So... So this business is not for sale. This business will never be sold. And I'm working my butt off with my family and I want to make sure it continues because it gets bigger and bigger. We get better and better at serving God and building people. And to close, 
We went back to where it all began, his family. My dad and I always discussed everything and went through everything and, and came to agreement on stuff. This, was it hard working with your dad? I mean, a phrase I often think about is that we're, we're hardest on those we're closest to. I mean, I am, I am more vicious towards my younger brother than I would be to you because we have that closeness where we feel like we can be you know, particularly honest and hard on each other. So does that make it hard when you're trying to operate a business together and keeping some of those family emotions out of it? Never. Never. Never happened. Always had the greatest respect for, respect for my mom and dad. Uh, my sister. We ran that business together for many, many, many years and never had a harsh word. What do you attribute to that? You love your parents, you respect your parents, they love you, you and your sister, and, the, and, their, and her feelings in there are more important than the business. Yeah. And it's not about a pride thing, it's not about an ego thing, it's just you work together, you know. And right there, you're, almost, you're almost tearing up thinking about them, I can tell. Yeah, 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 there's a lot of great memories. And there you have it, what a story, I'm tearing up myself. What a way to live life. Ralph's teaching all of us a lot. And how often do you hear men running businesses with 1,400 employees, the largest producer of sausage in America, nearly $1 in yearly sales, telling the titan of the industry, Oscar Mayer, ain't for sale. God says no. God says no. This is our American stories, Ralph Steyer's story, Johnsonville Sausage's story, And Alex, as always, great job on these stories about ordinary Americans doing extraordinary things and often because of their faith, not in spite of it.